You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Samson-Hill.
That was the song Bad Girl by Norwegian band Mall Girl. And before that, we played Kakashi by Japanese composer Yasuaki Shimizu. My name is Akuya Duborne, and I was a course nine major, Brain and Cognitive Sciences, graduated in 2006. I am an international student um, from Ghana, born in London, uh, but I lived in uh, Lesotho, which is Southern Africa. I lived in Ghana. I went to boarding school in Togo, boarding school in Canada before I arrived at MIT. So I kind of moved around a lot. So that multiculturalism or that kind of uh, global perspective was part and parcel of my life. But what I was really looking to do was to experience things a little bit differently where I could be, embed myself in a culture and almost kind of live it um, as a native, if even for a short period of time. I wanted to be able to embed myself fully in a lab to get that experience because I didn't know if there would be another time where I could do that. I also wanted to use that opportunity to embed myself in a foreign culture as well. So almost like a two for one. And I remember talking to my advisor then, Professor Gerald Schneider, Jerry, and he had contacts in Paris. So it just worked out seamlessly that I could go to Paris, I could do research that was interesting, um, and you really get to experience uh, the country. So my placement was at Université Pierre-Marie Curie in Paris. My um, advisor and I spoke English, but everyone else in the lab, I pretty much spoke French too. Especially when we went out to lunch at the staff cafeteria, everything was sort of a lot of it was French and even in my day-to-day life where I was sort of navigating the metro and trying to figure out to get from point A to B spoke ended up speaking a lot of French I really was fortunate that a lot of people where I lived and the lab took me under their wings so whether it was going out in the evening to go dancing somewhere or go have like dinner somewhere off the beaten path I actually didn't so much feel like a tourist I felt like okay I was actually living the Parisian life or the French life. My project really was uh, in line with my major, my course nine major. It was basically trying to figure out whether a particular drug that my uh, advisor I was working with was testing out could really help animals recover neurologically after suffering a spinal cord injury. We had the rats uh, run these experiments where they were essentially on a treadmill to see how well they moved and then they were subjected to a spinal cord injury, which my professor, uh, my um, advisor did. And then we allowed them to recover and then assessed um, their function. Some of the rats had the drug, others didn't. So we were really looking to see the differences between the, uh, the rats who received the, the therapy versus those who didn't, and there were, there really was. And the cool bit of it was that in addition to doing the research, I was really able to sort of collect and analyze the data. So that was the first time where I kind of analyzed real world data, not kind of like the kind of data they give you in class. So I came away, learned a lot of things. I had taken a lot of neuroanatomy classes, so it kind of brought it to life because we always talk about spinal cord injury and this happens and that happens. But to see it actually play out in the animals, that I think was pretty cool. Um, And it actually was more impactful than I... uh, It was impactful for me, but I didn't know that others would perceive it the same way. When I applied to medical school, one of the part of my personal statement, I recounted my experiences in Paris working with the animals. Now we get to medical school. I went to medical school at Yale, class of 100. And I think uh, one of the first or second day of orientation, the director of admissions goes through everyone's personal statement and picks out like a one liner that really struck the admissions team. And guess what they picked for me? They picked a line about my experience working with the rats in Paris. And I was like, wow, who would have thought? I tucked it into my personal statement, but I didn't realize that it would strike people in the way that it really struck me. But I think it was really getting the sense of how a real lab functioned. Because at that point, to be honest, I knew that I was pre-med. 
but I wasn't sure if I was just going to go the MD route or whether I was going to get a PhD as well. It also confirmed for me that if I did do research, I wanted it to be um, a part of my, or an option of my clinical work versus a, a primary focus. So for me, more than the skills I gained or expertise, it kind of confirmed or helped um, affirm certain choices that I was making about my future. I did join the work at MIST, uh, I did through MISTI, and I kind of wanted to stay along the same lines. And so when I got to med school, I hit the ground running, really focused on neurology. So I did a lot of um, shadowing of neurologists. So I actually did my thesis work in um, pediatric neurology, looking at how really tiny babies, less than a kilogram, fare in a resource limited setting. So I actually did that work in Cape Town, South Africa. And neurology actually continues to be a big part of my life, actually. I work a lot in MS um, and in other spaces where there is uh, nerve damage and demyelination, but it's still a big part of my life, everything I learned at MIT and through my internship. I think when you're at MIT, I mean, MIT is a fantastic institution. I mean, I'm paralleled. But I also wanted to try it in, um, in, in a context where it wasn't quite MIT in terms of what was at my disposal. So it kind of gave me sort of a taste of, mm, I don't want to say the real world, but a different kind of setting. And so I think for me, it gave me an open-mindedness and a flexibility, a versatility and an adaptability in that I, I leveraged what I was learning and experienced at MIT, but in a different setting. I think it's very important to be able to do that because I think as I've gone down my uh, academic and uh, professional path, I realized that every so often you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And Misty really um, helped me get to that point where I got comfortable being uncomfortable because it wasn't always easy slotting into that lab experience in Paris, but um, I was better for it. And so to potential hosts, I will say that that decision to sort of fund this opportunity, whether it's a fellowship or some other uh, means or mechanism, can really, really uh, make a difference in someone's life in terms of helping them figure out who they are um, and what they seek to be. And MISTI gives you the safety to do that. So it's kind of like the structure to do that. Looking at the typical profile of an MIT student, you're going to get someone who you know is going to be brilliant, highly intelligent, hardworking, dedicated. But I think you also get, get someone who is um, very dynamic in their thinking, very innovative, someone who isn't afraid to take on a challenge, and someone who I don't think is necessarily afraid to fail. Because, I mean, MIT is so hard, you're going to have your ups and downs. But I think we pretty much get used to not always being successful or used to not always being perfect. But we are willing to take stuff on um, and see where it goes, actually, and follow those passions. So I think some of those things set us apart. Misty is dear to my heart. I have nothing but fond memories of my experience. I had a great time um, in the program and in Paris in general. And so um, I am grateful for that.
Good morning. I'm Ranu Bopana, class of 1987 and president of the MIT South Asian Alumni Association. No one is happier than me to welcome you to the final presentation of the MITSA Oral History Project. This project came about because MITSA was looking to celebrate what we thought was the 50th anniversary of uh, the first South Asian organization on campus. But some investigation uncovered the work of historian Ross Bissett, who while trying to um, understand how a region left behind by the industrial revolution became a central actor of the digital age, found that all roads led to MIT. Through Ross's book, The Technological Indian, we learned that the first South Asian student at MIT came soon after the Institute's founding. I knew that many people needed to know this story and I asked everyone who would listen how we could showcase this in a virtual or in-person exhibition. Finally, I met MIT history professor Sana Iyer um, and um, with the support of um, Misty India and Noreen Das, I'm so pleased that they've taken on this project over the past IEP. In this first phase of the project, Professor Iyer and 11 student interns have uncovered some of the incredible stories you'll be hearing about today. Thanks very much, Ranu, and thank you everyone for joining us today. 
um, when Ranu approached me with, uh, you know, putting together some kind of commemoration of Sangam's 60th anniversary, um, I wanted to bring a historian's gaze to this project. Um, I wanted to make sure that we showcase the scope and scale of MIT's very long engagement with South Asia. We wanted to focus on the early years for this particular project over IAP. Um, and we also wanted to make sure that we highlight MIT's um, you know, production of knowledge on South Asia uh, that went beyond just engineering to all the different schools at the Institute. And who better to tell the story than current MIT students? So for the past six weeks, um, the MIT students who you'll be hearing from shortly have been part of what I like to call a historian's lab. Um, they've been building an online um, archive of the material that we have found. And they've also conducted upwards of about 30 oral histories, interviews um, you know, with alum that they have chosen themselves. We gave them a little bit of basic training in oral histories, but really the idea was that the students would go out, select the alum that they are interested in, interview them, um, and then put together an oral history archive as well. This is very much a work in progress. Um, this is just the beginning of what I think is going to be a long uh, and very meaningful and diverse project. So I hope that what you hear and see today will inspire you to get involved. Um, Kishav Bhatt was the first Indian student at MIT. He came in 1882 where he studied chemistry and came back again in 1990 to study electricity as well. Uh, Bhatt first came to America during the peak of British colonialism when it was very rare to come overseas for education. He enrolled as a special student, which means that he was also working while taking classes, and that was at a dye works company in Malden, Massachusetts, before returning to India. Um, and there he used his technical skills to become involved with the dyeing industry and also learned canning. And so one fun fact we found was that a reporter mentioned that his canned guava tasted as good as fresh fruit. Um, despite the fact that some criticized Bot for spending so much time and money traveling abroad to be educated, he wrote in the first volume of the MIT Technological Review uh, that he credited MIT for his success and his friendships. Hi everyone, my name is Neosha Narayanan. I am a junior in, in uh, material science and engineering. So I wanted to highlight the story of Birendra Chandra Gupta, who attended MIT in the early 1900s to MIT for his bachelor's in electrical, electrical engineering. Um, while he was at MIT, he worked at the GE plant in Lynn, Massachusetts. And while he was in Lynn, he met a woman called Ethel Concord and they got married and they moved back to India and had three children named Kamala, Eunice and Thara. Um, then he was a professor at a college in India for about 10 years and he returned back to the United States um, and wrote this really interesting article in the Boston Globe um, about the anti-colonial movement um, in India, um, courtesy of Ross Bassett, who found that article. Um, and then I will next talk about um, K.S. Basu, who um, we believe was the first Indian grad student at MIT. He was from Howrah, India, and had a bachelor's already um, from the Presidential College of Calcutta. Um, at MIT, he did his master's in mechanical engineering. Um, I found this really interesting article in the tech in the 1950, in one of the 1915 um, editions of the tech um, in which Mr. Basu talked about um, industries and engineering um, and agriculture in India. Um, and another article that I found supporting this one um, said that 
Mr. Basu believed that the caste system was hindering India's ability to develop um, since only upper caste people were able to get um, a good education. Hi everyone, my name is Catherine. I'm a senior in uh, math, uh, mathematical economics, so 14-2. Um, and I'm gonna talk about the Kiloskar cousins who went to MIT from 1922 to 1926. So just a little background, the Kiloskar group is one of the biggest industrial firms in India um, and one of the biggest engineering conglomerates. Um, among other things, they produce pumps and engines. So they were the first large business family to send multiple generations of students to MIT. So they started with Madhav and Shantanu. So Madhav went to MIT from 1922 until 1924. He was studying electrical engineering because he wanted to go back home and run the electric motor business. Unfortunately, he passed away of tuberculosis during his senior year. Um, so that was definitely a tragedy um, for the family. Uh, his younger cousin, Shantanu, who was younger by four years, was studying for a bachelor in mechanical engineering. Um, some interesting things about Shantanu, because there was optional military training at MIT at the time, he was a reserve officer in the U.S. Army by the time he graduated. Um, he, it, he related some interesting stories about dormitory life in his memoir. Um, for example, one of his roommates put a block of rotten cheese on his radiator and he complained about it, of, of course, right? It's not horrible. Um, Shantanu went on to expand the Kiloskar group to the sort of massive uh, firm it is today. Um, so he had a long and wonderful career. Hello, everyone. My name is Hussein and I am a junior at MIT class of 2022 studying urban studies and planning and comparative media studies. I'm going to talk uh, today about Madan Bagai, who was possibly the first South Asian American student to come to MIT and his fascinating early life. Bagai immigrated to the U.S. with his family in 1915. They lived in San Francisco after being unable to move into a Berkeley neighborhood for fear of violent racist backlash from their white neighbors. In 1923, his family lost U.S. citizenship because of the Supreme Court case U.S. versus Tint. During this time, they had also renounced British citizenship. So by legal definitions, they were stateless. In 1946, with the Loose Cellar Act, the family was finally allowed naturalization in the US. However, before this act, Madan's father unfortunately died by suicide in, the in 1928 because he felt trapped and betrayed by the US government and because he was distraught about being unable to return home to India. Madan's enrollment at MIT and his family's grappling with immigration, citizenship, grief, and belonging allows us to connect MIT in a deeply personal way to US history and early South Asian diasporic experiences. So um, after, Madan, uh, after Madan's father died, um, their family was able to get back on their feet um, and he ended up attending MIT um, in the early 1930s. He majored in naval architecture at MIT. Uh, after Madhan graduated, he attempted to find a job in the U.S., but unfortunately he was unsuccessful because the companies he applied to um, d were discriminating against him. It was likely racially based. Um, so in order to find employment, he moved back to India. Um, and although the history is a little bit murky, um, we know that he did uh, unfortunately pass away from some sort of illness um, soon after he returned to India. Uh, I'm gonna talk, take this a um, little bit towards uh, what students were like beyond the classroom. And before that, let me introduce myself. My name is Rujal. I'm a junior in linguistics and ECS. Um, one of the things I was doing on this project was going through archives of the tech 
um, which is the undergraduate student newspaper. And going through the early days, something that was interesting was in the 1940s, as the number of students, uh, South Asian students on campus started to increase, and this coincided with uh, the independence struggle intensifying in India, students coming to MIT brought their anti-colonial activism and thoughts with them. A few examples of this stood out in the tech. There were um, opinion articles written, letters to the editor written. There were reports of um, the Hindustan Association holding India Day celebrations on the 26th of January. There were talks on topics pertaining to British-India relations. And uh, towards the end of the decade, as um, there were two new nations looking towards um, MIT for um, inspiration for educational institutes and industrialization, um, there were leaders and diplomats coming to campus. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Luisa Apolaya Torres. I am a senior studying mechanical engineering and theater. And I'll be talking a little bit about the MIT India program through the MISTI uh, initiative at MIT. The MISTI initiative, the International Science and Technology Initiative at MIT, allows for students to study abroad around different countries and engage in internships and learn about cultures and histories. Um, and the way that the MIT India program started was in 1998, when Amit Ranadiv and Vinay Pulam, and undergraduate students at the time, with the help of faculty and Indian alumni, saw the very successful MIT Japan and MIT China programs and asked themselves, why not India as well? So they got together, made a plan, and decided to travel to Pune, India, along with the first cohort of MIT students, um, and teach coding at a local high school in Pune. An interesting uh, connection that I'd want to make is that Keshav Bhatt was actually, which, which was mentioned as the first Indian student at MIT, was actually from Pune as well. So it's interesting how the first interns went to Pune um, through this program. After ITEP was uh, successful, um, more MIT alumni from India started to want to help connect MIT students to internship opportunities in the country. And to date, MIT India has sent a thousand plus students to engage in a variety of different uh, jobs. Um, so the first student from Nepal came to MIT in 1970. And since then, about 469 undergraduate and graduate students um, from Nepal have graduated from MIT. These alumni are really active in Nepal and are involved in a range of projects. Um, in 2015.6 Richter earthquake in Nepal claimed thousands of lives. Half a globe away in their home, Nepali students at MIT were jolted to action to address the scale of this problem. This was the start of a long collaboration with MIT. A Nepali alum, uh, Ram Rijal, who was in the class of 2012, um, who was interviewed for the project by Prajwal, is the founder of the Bloom Nepal Academy, which is a school inspired by MIT. The MIT Nepal initiative was also involved in the reconstruction of the school after it was devastated by the earthquake in 2015. Another alum, Rabi Karmacharya, has also been leading efforts to utilize technology to improve the education leading um, the government's one child, one laptop scheme. Uh, so now that we've talked about student organizations, we wanna to touch a little bit about the academic 
uh, ecosystem at MIT and how it relates to South Asian history. Um, so first of all, I'm presenting this slide on behalf of Jason, another student in our cohort, who is an architecture student. Uh, he researched Charles Correa, who was a South Asian uh, architecture student who graduated in 1955. Uh, Charles Correa is considered Indian's greatest architect. He actually followed in the footsteps of a lot of early architecture students at MIT um, from South Asian descent that use their work to contribute to sustainable solutions um, addressing social issues back in South Asia. His uh, Master of Architecture thesis was the first film produced in the department. Um, he uh, designed the Gandhi Memorial Museum of Ahmedabad in India. He also designed the McGovern Institute at MIT. Um, and like I mentioned, a lot of his work is surrounding sustainable uh, development through architecture. Uh, which is highlighted through the Bellapore housing project that used modularity and space and local, local craftsmen uh, materials, local, local craftsmen and local materials to create sustainable housing. Um, he gained a lot of recognition, including the Aga Khan Award for Architecture, which Hussein will talk about. The Aga Khan program in Islamic architecture was founded in 1979 through an endowment by the Aga Khan IV to further the study of Islamic architecture. Many architecture PhD and graduate student scholars who have graduated with this program as a concentration have dedicated their theses to many important sites related to South Asian Muslim architecture and the South Asian diaspora. Overall, the work done by the Aga Khan program has added valuable perspectives on spatial political dynamics for South Asian peoples. The program has allowed countless diaspora scholars to create bodies of work about architecture in these regions that go beyond an international development perspective and dive deeper into these sites as places of contention and conjunction between identity and structure. Yeah, so as been hinted at by several people, uh, a major part of this project was also looking at the oral histories. And so now we're just gonna share some highlights from some of our interviews this past month. Um, so I'll start with uh, M.G. Vasanji, who was raised in Tanzania before he came to MIT, where he got a BS in physics in 1974. Um, while at MIT, he actually helped found the MIT African Students Association with a few other Ethiopian, Malawian, and Kenyan students as well. So we thought that was really cool to sort of see um, the East African Indian diaspora um, in person. Uh, the African Students Association mainly met to discuss various world events, and they also like cooked food for each other from their various cultures. And then one note here that we also found interesting is that because he uh, came from East Africa, he always felt that the partition between India and Pakistan was more imposed on him than something he personally lived through. Um, and so after MIT, he actually got his PhD in nuclear physics and worked as a postdoc in Canada for a few years. And then uh, he actually published a book called The Gunny Sack, which launched his career as an esteemed writer. And so we were really excited to interview him because of this uh, really cool career switch and the fact that many of his books now relate to the South Asian diaspora. Yes, our next alum is Dr. Pervez Hoodboy, who actually also did go to MIT at the same time as M.G. Basanji, which was really fun to find out through their interviews. Um, Dr. Pervez Hoodboy studied at MIT for nine years, receiving his bachelor's, master's, and PhD here. He was born in Karachi and came to MIT in 1969, when he describes remembering his first day on campus as seeing a student-led anti-Vietnam War protest. During his time at MIT, he co-founded a group called Concerned South Asian Scholars for students from South Asia or the diaspora to talk about how they could be involved in the fight for equality and peace in the region. 
Dr. Hoodboy returned to Pakistan after reaching, re receiving his PhD. He spent 40 years at the Qaeda Azam University as a professor and department chair, and would also be a visiting professor at MIT. Upon returning home, he became an anti-nuclear and a social justice activist, and often spoke about his support for the Bangladeshi independence movement. One of the interviews that I did uh, was with Alnitra Patel, who was the first woman from India to graduate from MIT, and the first uh, female engineer from South Asia at MIT in general. She uh, grew up in Bombay with an interest in biology, but at her father's request, decided to study ceramics at MIT. After her career in ceramics, she retired and um, turned towards environmental activism and waste management, which is what she's working on to this day. Um, something there was a, there were a lot of interesting moments in this interview um, because it was um, even though it's so far in the past, there were some parts of it that were. There, relatable, um, such as when she told me that um, being on campus, she decided at one point that if she couldn't fit in, she would just be different. And so um, unable to keep up with the changing fashion trends, she would just wear saris to class. And um, I found that quite interesting, among many other things in this interview. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Priya Natarajan two weeks ago. Um, so Dr. Natarajan uh, graduated from MIT with a bachelor's in physics and math in 1990, and then a master's in 93. Um, so she's currently a professor in astronomy and physics at Yale. Um, and the reason I wanted to interview her was like, one, she's a very accomplished theoretical astrophysicist, Two, I was interested in her perspective as a woman of color um, in the sciences at a time when there were very few women in the sciences at all. For one, uh, she was dared to join the skydiving club and then she actually like really liked it. So she kept doing that. Um, definitely one theme that we kept coming back to was to never stop learning because even though Dr. Natarajan describes herself as a physics and math nerd, She's always been interested in a variety of things. Her first year off was actually in anthropology and, and she briefly considered architecture as a major. Um, and to this day, she tries to read one book that's outside her field every week. So I think that's, that's a really great sort of model for keeping track of like everything that's going on in the world. Um, she also had similar advice as Almatra Patel, which was to define success for yourself and forge your own path. Um, and the last bit of advice she had for people my age specifically was to find your mentors, like those professors in the classes that you really enjoyed, for example, um, and to keep them updated about your life so that, you know, in, in the long term, you're able to have someone to talk to about career decisions. So the interviews that I did um, that I wanted to highlight was two. One that I did with George Ruckert, who was the founder of Midhas at MIT. Midhas is the MIT heritage of arts of South Asia. Uh, Mithas also means sweetness in Hindi, which is the reason that that name was uh, chosen. Um, George Ruckert uh, came together with Mois Raji and Donald Chand uh, to create this program that welcomed uh, South Asian artists to MIT. And once the South Asian artists come to MIT, Ruckert uh, shared with me that um, their career takes off back home, and it's a great opportunity for them. It's a great opportunity for, this, for the students at MIT and the surrounding area to 
learn more about the musical traditions back home and the Indian classical tradition, South Asian classical tradition. Um, there have been over 150 performances through this program. Ali Akbar Khan has come many times, as well as Sakir Hussein and Rashid Khan. Um, and I'm personally really interested in music, so it was great to talk to him about um, how, how this program came to be at MIT and its prominence in New England. Um, I also got to talk to Arun Javid, who graduated from MIT in 1968 with a degree in chemical engineering. And throughout his life, he pursued chemical engineering as well as uh, a very professional career in uh, Hindustani classical music. He's part of the Jaipur Gharana and now is one of the, um, one of the sole gurus uh, of that, of that Gharana uh, still, um, still teaching. And uh, he, he talked to me about his life being a, both a musician and an engineer. And I was really interested in the intersection between the two and if he uh, saw any difference in the way that he approached both of his works. But he mentioned to me that creativity and music and engineering are basically the same, it's just different toolboxes. And in one, you're creating something that's gonna help humanity uh, physically and when you're helping something that you're creating something that will help humanity spiritually. Um, so it's it's really amazing to see how our alumni pursue pursue these um, paths for themselves, both in the creative and the in the technical fields. Its organizers hope the project will tell a larger story of how students and alumni go on to shape their communities and the role of the institution in providing students with the experiences in and outside the classroom to accomplish this. The discussion of universal basic income, a program where the government issues cash to its citizens on a consistent basis, is quite contentious in America, coming in and out of the mainstream political discourse through the years. It most recently became a hot issue during Andrew Yang's presidential run. But it's not a policy limited to the United States. UBI was implemented in Kenya and through new research has been considered a successful program in lifting up Kenyans, especially those living in poverty. MIT Africa hosted a keynote about UBI in Kenya, featuring Associate Professor of Applied Economics here at MIT, Dr. Tavneet Shuri. Take a listen. I want to get start with some motivation of why we started thinking about a UBI to start with. Like, what was the reason that we should have built up a project or what were we trying to understand better and why were we motivated to do this? Um, there's a lot of cash transfer programs in developing countries in general. You know, they can be school feeding programs, which is kind of an in-kind cash transfer, if you want. Uh, they come as unconditional in cash, in in-kind, in fee waivers, in conditional. You know, if you get your kids vaccinated, then you get a cash transfer, those sorts of things. So there's a huge diversity of cash transfer programs. But these are often just sort of a one-off cash transfer program. Um, in general, what have we learned? There's been a huge amount of work studying these cash transfer programs. Um, something like, you know, 500 million people in the developing world before COVID would get some form of a cash transfer. Uh, and everything we've learned across many, many countries now is that, uh, you know, if you thought of any of the negative impacts that people were worried about, we don't see them. We see reductions in spending on temptation goods. Think of those as, you know, meals out, alcohol, cigarettes, those sorts of things. 
and we don't see big reductions in labor supply. One of the worries is if I give people cash transfers, they'll stop working. Um, you see a wide variety of positive impacts on all sorts of economic and social outcomes. Um, in COVID, we've seen uh, over 200 countries introduce new social protection measures, uh, something like almost 1,200 new social protection measures have come in last year to cover about 1.8 billion people in the developing world. And most of this has been cash reaching about 1.2 billion. Uh, some of it more haphazard than others. So this is kind of what we knew and what's happening in the world on the cash transfer side. Um, the question is, why did we think of, U of a UBI in this context? We know there's cash transfers, we know a lot about them. So what does the, the UBI piece do? Um, so let me motivate that and then I'll tell you about our study and our results, which is what everybody wants to hear mostly. Um, you know, the aim of development is to figure out ways to raise standards of living. Okay, and a UBI will do that very directly. You're gonna give people a basic income um, and it's gonna be a pretty long-term basic income as I'll describe. And so, you know, understanding how people use the money uh, is still an important question. The other important question that comes with universality is all of the cash transfers have some form of targeting. They try to figure out who's poor and who's not poor and give it to poor people. And you know, we're very bad at measuring poverty, which is one issue with all of these cash transfers. And the second is we don't know how the effects vary across the income distribution, right? You can imagine that if a business got a cash transfer, someone who owns a business got a cash transfer, they're gonna grow their business and maybe create longer term employment opportunities or grow the GDP or except things like that. And because we've done cash transfers mostly targeted on poor people, what we know about them is restricted to that set. We don't know kind of as we go up the income distribution, what are the effects? Um, so that's one reason we started thinking about a UBI is because it has universality in it. Okay, so we will have a universal basic income, which means everybody gets it. We're not trying to target poor people. You know, on the economic side, we have loads of literature and economics showing all these constraints that poor people face. Credit constraints, they can't get loans because they don't really have collateral and they don't have credit histories, et cetera, et cetera. Insurance constraints, they're really worried about downside risk. Um, and so they often, you, you, we now have evidence actually even from my Sloan colleagues showing that people will invest in low risk, low return things. Uh, if they're worried about downside risk. If I really have to think about, oh, if this goes badly, I can't feed my kids tomorrow, you know, that's a pretty salient reason not to take on risk. So we know that people are constrained by insurance. They don't have insurance and so they don't take on risk because they can't deal with the downside risk when they're poor. And then there's also a recent literature on psychological constraints uh, and, you know, a whole bunch of constraints around how you make decisions that are driven by sort of psychology. Um, what we don't know is, so we know these constraints are there. We know that probably different, we know that people, different people face different constraints or different combinations of constraints. And so, you know, understanding first, how do we figure out which constraints bind for who? and what are the best interventions to target those specific constraints? And those are two things we actually don't know that much about in general. 
So we know there's all these constraints, but we don't have a good way of figuring out which constraints bind for who at what time. And you know they might be dynamic and they might change over time and the best interventions. And so this makes UBI interesting. It's not gonna be stepping on any one constraint. It's not gonna alleviate any one constraint, but in that sense, it allows people to decide or figure out for themselves what are the constraints that bind most for them and hopefully invest in alleviating those. And so that's why it's interesting because you're going to try and take a very step back and say, I'm not going to try and figure out what constraint binds for you and target that. I'm just going to try and, you know, run a relatively broad anti-poverty program and see if that kind of, you know, generates growth in some grant sense. Okay. Um, just to quickly on targeting, um, most cash transfers, as I mentioned, are targeted. People will try and figure out who's poor. This often results in inclusion and exclusion errors. I'll include non-poor people in, I'll exclude poor people from getting it just because I don't measure poverty very well at all. Um, in addition, you know, we target households, not people, or we often measure poverty at the household level. It turns out there's lots of poor people who live in non-poor households. And so we really want a individual person specific measure, which is really hard to get. Um, I mean, targeting is even imperfect in this country, imagine in developing countries. You know, it creates a potential for elite capture and then you have to kind of figure out what do you target? Do I target poverty, which is based on consumption? What do you spend on? Or do I try to target more local measures of welfare um, that people might care about more? So that's kind of the targeting literature. It's a long literature showing, you know, targeting is extremely hard to do. It's extremely expensive to do. It takes a lot of money to collect data. And because a lot of people change poverty status over time. So from year to year or something like, you know, only 40% of people who are poor remain poor or, you know, or if they're non-poor remain non-poor. So something like 60% of people, and this is from four different African countries are changing poverty status from year to year. And so targeting then becomes even more difficult because you're trying to say, oh, I need to track them every year and understand what's happening every year. And then finally, the other plus side for universality is that it builds a political base of support, right? The more people that get a, a welfare program in general, the higher the support is for that program. And so universality might be you know, politically a bit more tenable, a, a bit more easy in that sense that there's a huge base of support. Okay, so that's kind of just the motivation for why we started thinking about a UBI and kind of the problems it's trying to solve, right? There's two big things. One is I'm taking targeting out uh, and I don't have to deal with figuring out who's poor or not. And um, we're also gonna be able to start to study how the effects of cash transfers vary up the income chain. Okay, um, today what I'm going to do is think more carefully about COVID um, and a big sort of negative event. And so, you know, thinking about what a UBI could do there, um, we'll see some of this in the data in a second, but, you know, UBI could increase the sensitivity of income to shocks. So imagine the UBI acts as your insurance. It gives you a protection against downside risk. Now I can take on risk because I know the UBI is coming. I can feed my kids. If it generates that behavior, I'm gonna have more volatile income and that more volatile income is gonna be more sensitive to shocks that happen like COVID. Okay, so it could actually increase the sensitivity of income to shocks. Um, it should reduce the sensitivity of consumption to shocks, right? Whatever I'm eating should be better protected because that's what the UBI is covering. 
the UBI is going to cover food and a bit of health and a bit of education and you know utilities, much as people have utilities. And so in that sense, you should see consumption not respond to the shocks because you can still kind of function thanks to the UBI, but you'll see income. And then we'll be able to sort of look at a little bit in um, during COVID, you know, how do people interact with the health system? And how does health evolve in social distancing and things like that? Those are questions that are really specific to the pandemic, uh, but are important and things we didn't know about before. And then finally, I'll just comment that the pandemic has made a lot of the population eligible for social protection that never was before. Uh, so we're getting close to universality for the first time in reality uh, during the pandemic. So in some sense, you know, our results are pretty sort of closely tied to that because we're testing, you know, we have universality. The pandemic is maybe the first example we've seen of something coming closer to universality. Um, you know, in Togo, for example, they've been doing cash transfers over mobile phones and that's, you know, and trying to target a little but not doing very much targeting. Okay, let me go into the fun parts now that I've motivated UBI and what we're trying to do with it. Okay, so we're gonna do two things. We designed a field experiment and Kenny, I'll talk about it in a second. Um, it's not just a UBI, but we'll, it also gave us the opportunity to test sort of some of these design questions around UBI. So we're gonna have variations in the form of the UBI and I'll show you those in a second. And then we cross randomized two nudges uh, to think about the, the psychological constraints, a planning nudge, which is just sort of a little speech telling people to try and plan what they're gonna do with the money when it comes and a savings notch, which is encouraging them to save in a, in a digital form, in a digital bank account that um, exists in Kenya that a lot of people now have. Okay, let me show you more on the experiment. So we ran the experiment in two uh, counties, two of the po poorest, almost poorest, poorer counties in Kenya. Just to give you some context on the two counties we're in, these are pretty poor counties um, and, on average, um, and the households are baseline. This is before we implemented the UBI, should have owned less than two acres of land. Lots had phones, but lots of Kenyans have phones. Um, you know, a large share, at least it seems like a large share had a bank account, but this could be a digital bank account on their phone. And then they're mostly farming, but about a fifth own a business of some sort, okay? And 85% experienced hunger at least once in the last 12 months. Okay, here's the experiment. It's across 295 villages in these two counties. We have three arms in the experiment. So a group got a short-term UBI, a group got a group of villages, a group of villages got the long-term UBI. Um, and then we also tested something we called the lump sum, where um, the equivalent of the two-year UBI was given upfront as a lump sum. The others are getting a payment every month like you would for income in the US, right? You just get a regular payment every month. Um, okay, the, the short-term UBI is two years, so people got a regular payment every month for two years, uh, and that ended spring of 2020. Um, the long-term UBI is going to run for 12 years, so we're getting close to about the three-year mark of theirs, um, and the upfront, of course, got it upfront, so it was a one-time. Um, just to give you a sense of the payments, they're 75 cents a person a day. These are targeted at the individual level. Each person, each adult gets a UBI. Um, and so uh, the 
two-year equivalent was a $500 one-time transfer upfront in net present value. And then just to give you a sense of the number of adults, there's about just under 9,000 adults in the short-term arm, just over 5,000 in the long-term arm, and just under 9,000 in the lump sum. And then there's about 12,000 in the control. Um, and this was all randomized. Okay, so overall, there's about 30,000 people in the 295 villages in the study. And there's more than 20,000 people getting some sort of UBI in the experiment. It's about $25 million of transfers in total that we will make. Uh, and they're all on uh, a mobile money system in Kenya called M-Pesa. So they're all delivered digitally over mobile money. We asked whether any household member had been sick in the last 30 days. You're seeing a reduction in that um, of about three or four percentage points, okay? Um, for all three treatment groups, it's about the same size in all three treatment groups, as you can see. Um, then we asked how many mem household members had been sick. Again, you'll see a reduction in the people being sick um, in all three treatment groups and about the same size still. And then we asked if they'd gone to a hospital, if they'd been sick, um, and we see reductions in that. Um, I think that's not because they're worried about COVID. I think it's because they're actually healthier. And I think these health effects are coming from the UBI. Um, at this time, when we did this survey, oh, I should have said this too, sorry, I forgot COVID context. Um, there were very few COVID cases where we were working, like a couple of cases in the entire county. So this was not about the, the disease or the effects of the disease, but actually it's about the policy response to the disease, right? So markets were shut down, uh, a lot of transport was shut down, um, Nairobi kind of the county was on lockdown, no one could go in and out. So this is about kind of that affecting kind of general life. You know, if you're trading and buying food and things like that, when markets are shut down and there's restrictions on transport and travel and all these things. Okay, and then we also collected um, a standard depression scale uh, in the end line and in the phone survey, and you'll see reductions in depression, okay, um, uh, that are sizable, Again, the same across groups, pretty much. Um, you know, some of it's starting to disappear during COVID and smaller differences during COVID, but those are not going to be statistically different from each other in general. So we do see improvements in, in mental health as well. If anyone owned an enterprise, you see kind of about a five to 10 percentage point increase in owning an enterprise that's across all groups again. And when we went back um, in summer 2020, remember these are about five, six months apart, the surveys, they're not that long. Um, you know, there's still an increase there in owning an enterprise. So basically some people started an enterprise with the UBI and those enterprises are still there. Okay, they're largely still there. And then we look at enterprise profits. Again, you're seeing enterprise profits grow, you know, it's much less in the short-term arm if I look here. Uh, a doubling in the long-term and the lump sum arm of enterprise profits, okay? That's literally from 50 to 100. It's a huge increase in enterprise profits. When we uh, go to summer 2020, that increase in profits is basically wiped out, okay? So the enterprises are still there, but their profits are largely completely wiped out. Even the difference is small and it's not, not different from the control group, right? So they get these big increases from enterprises in, in profits, 
And then when we go back in summer 2020, these, these are wiped out. Remember, this is not just the COVID restrictions. It could also be hungry season. So we, we kind of uh, got measures of food security where the people were hungry and the average numbers of days, they had zero meals, one meal, two meals. And you're gonna see improvements in food security that persist. Okay, so there's a big reduction. Um, you know, this is like a 30% reduction in the average days you have no meals. Um, we see persistent effects of the UBI through COVID times on health, physical and mental health, uh, on income, especially on entrepreneurship income and on food security. Um, sorry, on entrepreneurship, like starting the business, not on that income <laughs> and on food security. Um, we do see reductions in business income, right, in, in the summer. Um, and then, but we see large improvements in food security, okay? Um, the caveat, like I mentioned right from the beginning is the differences could be the, could be seasonality plus COVID, combination of both, one or the other, but it should be seen as the combination. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Khatoun. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll close out the show with the song It's Okay to Cry by Sophie, a Scottish pioneering producer who tragically passed away last month. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Forget I would know you best I hope you don't take this the wrong way But I think your inside is your best side oh, Was that a teardrop in your eye? I never thought I'd see you cry I just know whatever hurts, it's all mine It's okay to cross Oh.